Luke 2, 8 through 15, but I'd like to read Luke 2, 1 through 15 this morning. So turn with me to Luke 2, 1 through 15. It's printed in your bulletin, 8 through 15 is, but if you like, you can turn. If you don't have a Bible with you, turn with me. There's a pew Bible right in front of you in the, in the little caddy there underneath the chairs. You can grab that. It's page 857 in the, in the uh, pew Bible. This is Luke 2, 1 through 15 this morning, which is what we're going to look at and read together. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word. and hmm, Help us to hear the good news so clearly this morning. Come Holy Spirit and Penetrate the, uh, the shell of our heart and our soul. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and we might feel very tangled this morning and very conflicted. Um, I pray that, um, Holy Spirit, would you drill down deep, bore down through that, those layers of hurt and shame and fear and worry and anxiety. Would you drill down past those uh, idols that we have clung to that, that give us a, a false sense of hope and comfort? Uh, come, Holy Spirit, and, and uh, touch the deepest places of our soul and heart this morning with the good news of Jesus this morning. So help us, Lord, and help me, your uh, messenger who is weak, and I am so needy, Lord, and I'm um, weary and um, sometimes distracted. Lord, I pray certainly for your help this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, and, and uh, even use these words to, um, uh, to encourage and draw us back to Jesus this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 2, 1 through 15. I'm actually reading in the NIV, the 1984 version, because I really like how the NIV translates this passage. Similar to the ESV, but I, I like how the NIV uh, does on this particular passage. Luke 2, 1 through 15. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Well, the last several weeks we've been looking at 
what the real meaning of Christmas is, and we've chosen four themes or four words to help us with that, right? A few weeks ago, we, we looked at the word of expectation or theme of expectation. We sang that one of my favorite Christmas hymns, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, right? And that hymn is just full of this longing, of this aching for the coming of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Then last week, we looked at the word incarnation or the theme incarnation, right? The God became man in Christ, and that's really the bedrock. That's the foundation of Christianity, and really what gives Christmas its greatest and true meaning. It's the incarnation of Jesus, right? Well, today we look at this theme of celebration, and you see that in all of the Christmas carols and Christmas hymns that we sing, this idea or this theme of celebration, right? Our family has this tradition that we started, uh, I guess, a few years ago. We read this book kind of leading up to Christmas called the Best Christmas Pageant Ever by Barbara Robinson. I don't know if you've ever read that story. If you haven't, it's absolutely hilarious. I laugh every time we read it, and I know the story. Uh, but it's this story about the Herdman children, six kids who are just the, like the worst kids in this little town. You know, they're, 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 they're from a broken home, and they're all kind of disheveled, right, and dirty, you know, and don't have any shoes. They live in this garage uh, overlooking the town, and, you know, they smoke cigars, you know, little kids, you know, smoking cigars and drinking wine and just stealing from the local department store. They're just horrible kids, right? And nobody wants the Herdmans around, and they come to the church. And the only reason they come to church is because the church serves snacks during Sunday school, right? And so the kids come to church, you know, and, and they hear the good news of Jesus. And, and they get roped in, or they actually volunteer themselves to be part of the Christmas pageant, the Christmas play. Oh, and it's a hilarious story. Very poignant message, too, because you see just how their hearts are changed when they hear the good news of, of the Christmas story. It really is a great, precious story. I commend it to you highly by Barbara Robinson called the best Christmas pageant ever. But Barbara does a great job of, of setting up the tension that you would feel if you were a kid. And some of you, probably many of you, when you were little, were in some kind of Christmas pageant or play, right? Or some kind of Christmas nativity. I, I wouldn't doubt if many of you guys, when you were kids, were in one of those Christmas plays. And she does a great job of setting up this tension that you felt, trying to figure out which role you're going to play in the Christmas play, right? Because all the girls, little girls, wanted to be married, right? All the little girls wanted to sign up to be married. But if you did want to be married, you're a little girl and you didn't want to be married, then undoubtedly you would have been cast as probably an angel, right? And then the boys. Now, if the girls long to be married, the boys, like the antithesis of that, like, no way I'm going to be Joseph, right? Why? Because they had to stand next to Mary, right? Girls have cooties when you're little, right? And so you just don't want to stand next to Mary and be Joseph, right? And so most of the boys aspired to be wise men, kind of just the, you know, and classically, I'm not sure that it was true, but classically there was three of them, right? And then the leftover folks, the general population, inevitably ended up being what? Shepherds, right? Being a shepherd, right? Kind of the most mundane of roles. Barbara Robinson said, listen, there are no small parts in the Christmas play, just small actors, is what she says. Well, if you were a shepherd, there was some consolation, though, because you could put the blanket over your head and hide, right? Because if you were shy, you're like, oh, well, I can hide here a little bit, and you still got to be in the Christmas play, right? But it's amazing that the shepherds, particularly in a Christmas play, seem to be looked down upon on an ordinary light, but really... Biblically and biblical, biblically speaking, in, in those times, shepherds were also looked down upon. Uh, 
you know, if you wanted to be Mary or if you wanted to be Joseph, you had to kind of be the most popular. You, you know, you, you, you had to be kind of the best looking in class, right? And it seems like the shepherds were always kind of the ordinary folks, the ones who were always got the bad rap. And I think that's what makes the Christmas message that we just read here in Luke all the more glorious, right? Because here are these angels, the heavenly host comes and gives this glorious message to the most mundane of people, right? And God had it that way, I believe. Many of you listened to Bach's Christmas cantata, you know, Gloria and Excelsis. We just sang it, I believe it was that first hymn that we sang, is that right? This morning, the very first hymn. Yeah, angels we have heard on high, you're familiar with that refrain, Gloria and Excelsis Deo, Gloria and Excelsis Deo, that Latin phrase for glory to God in the highest, right? And so the angels come and deliver this most amazing news to these, most amazing message to these mundane, kind of most ordinary people, the shepherds, right? Who are just going about their business, tending their flocks. And in fact, in biblical times, you can read about this, uh, read about Josephus and the history of the Jews, particularly, you'll see that shepherds were not trusted people. Uh, Many of them were uneducated, and because of that, because shepherds were looked down upon, which I think is silly, but because they were looked down upon, that shepherds were not even a, allowed to testify in a court of law because they were so looked down upon. They were so considered uneducated, untrustworthy. But suddenly here in the, this night that Luke explains to us that he sets up for us, suddenly, suddenly in the Bethlehem fields that night, the angels show up and appear singing praise to God. And their message is really striking, isn't it? And that's what I want to look at this morning. It's just this message of the angels to the shepherds, right? These ordinary folks. And I think it's a very shepherd-oriented message because the first things that the shepherds are told is that it's good news for all people. And it's interesting that Luke tells us about two very different announcements this morning, right? We just read the first one there in the first uh, seven verses. This announcement about taxation, right? And then the census that was required by the Roman government. That was kind of the first announcement. And right on the heels of that first announcement, then Luke gives us the second announcement that he says, To you, this day in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And Luke is very intentional in giving us this strange juxtaposition of events here. And I think it's at the very heart of the Christmas message because the first announcement that Luke gives us, right, is this power and majesty of Rome, this Roman emperor's decree that he's going to bring taxes and this census upon his people. And then it's like Luke wants to give us the second decree that just totally blows the first one out of the water, totally overshadows the first decree that then from heaven, this divine decree comes that overshadows the first one. And God is saying, it's almost like God, when Luke juxtaposes these two events here, it's almost like God is saying, listen, this world will always take from you, right? But there is a world from which these angels come that will always give to you, right? You know, it's very interesting that the first words that the angels say are what? What do they say? Do not be what? Afraid. That's good news. You don't have to be afraid. Do not be afraid. Those are significant words because I think a lot of us here this morning, in your heart of hearts, you are afraid. 
I think there are some of you here among us who don't know the Lord and you struggle with fear. And fear is a daily part of your life. It's a daily struggle you have. And I think most folks who don't know the Christian gospel struggle with this. They're afraid and they try to disguise that fear. They try to push away that fear and it always seems to well back up. It always seeps through into your mind and your heart. When a coworker comes to you, who knows that crazy Christian, right? And that coworker comes to you and starts talking to you about Jesus once again, right? And he is mustering in the most sincere way. He's talking to you about the Lord and his faith. And there's something within you that wishes to silence him and shut him up. And you shudder in fear and uncomfortableness whenever he brings up the name of Jesus, right? And here the angels are saying, bursting forth, listen, listen, do not be afraid. We need to learn that there's the message The one that the angels are talking about, he's saying, listen, there is nothing to fear from the one you are most fearful of if you are in Christ. And that has huge implications for your life. But for some of you who don't know the Lord, you've struggled and you think, gosh, if I come to Christ, or if I begin to even really think about my status, my soul's status in this world, my soul's status with God, If I really begin to think about that, I get fearful. Do I really have to give my life to Jesus? Do I have to really give my heart to Jesus? What are people going to think? You know, I'm going to be like my crazy coworker, right? What are people going to think or say if I give my life to Jesus? Is it really going to make any difference in my life? What am I? Here's a classic question that many ask. What do I have to give up? What do I have to sacrifice? do, Do I really have to give that up? And so Luke introduces us to this Jesus who's lying in a manger in Bethlehem. And he causes, God causes his emissaries to come to these shepherds and say, don't be afraid. Y'all, that's a, that is a message and a hope and a promise you can take to the bank. You don't have to be afraid because I have good news, right? I have good news for you folks. And it's good news for all people, right? And he gives this announcement. He gives it in the form of this announcement, this birth announcement, the greatest birth announcement of all time, right? And it's such a brief birth announcement. There's not a word wasted, right? The angels say, to you, today, in the city of Bethlehem, is born the Savior, Christ the Lord, right? Now, we know that this birth announcement is the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. We talked a little bit about that this morning when we looked at Malachi, about 400 years uh, in the past, right? It's this uh, fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. But there's something strange here about this birth announcement. It's really striking, actually. Think about this. If you were to go, you know, go down to Gro- Kroger, to uh, downtown Daleville there at Kroger, and you pick up a copy of the Roanoke Times, or you go to downtown Metropolis of Fincastle, and you pick up a Fincastle Herald, and you scour the papers, right, and you look for the birth announcements in the Herald or in the Roanoke Times, you know, birth announcements have this typical characteristic structure, right? When you read about a birth announcement, someone has a child, right? It would say, to John and Jane Doe is born a son, right? Or to John and Jane Doe is born a daughter. But this birth announcement that Luke gives us is not, typical of the characteristics of the birth announcements that we read today, right? What makes this 
birth announcement so very different, right, is that the angels come to praise God for his goodness. They give this amazing birth announcement, and listen to how they phrase it. To you. To you is born. To you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so you see that there's a little hint to these shepherds that there's never been a birth before like this. In fact, there will never be a birth again like this, just as well as there never will be another death like the one that followed the birth of Christ. This birth and death for us. That's the message that the angel is getting across. Do not be afraid, shepherds, for this one is born for you, and this one will die for you. And that's the reason the angels tell the, sh- tell the shepherds that this is good news because this baby has been born for you. He's been born for you. I know if you know the Old Testament, and many of you are pretty good Old Testament scholars, you have a pretty good Old Testament memory, right? But when you think about the Old Testament, that whenever God comes, particularly in the Old Testament, when he comes and he gives good news about salvation, or God comes and he shows up in the Old Testament and he's giving good news about hope, about promise, about grace, or about salvation, whenever he gives good news in the Old Testament about salvation or grace or hope or promise, he always accompanies that good news with a sign, doesn't he? And it's not like God gives us a sign because his promises aren't faithful and true. Why does he give us a sign? Because we're dumb sheep. <laughs> we forget, we're forgetful sheep. And we're full of unbelief. And so God gives us a sign that we can cling to, a sign that we can hope for and with, right? And so God comes to the shepherds and gives them the sign. The angel gives them the sign and says, this will be a sign for you. The baby will be found wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, right? And you can always tell, right, these days when a baby, baby's been born, what are the telltale characteristic signs that you see in your street or your neighborhood or your area of town where a baby has been born, right? Telltale signs, what are they? Stork, thank you. I knew somebody was going to say it. There's the stork in the yard, and then there's a baby blue or a pink bundle of blooms hanging on the mailbox, right? And then, you know, and if you live in a tight neighborhood with a cul-de-sac, you're annoyed because there's like 50 cars in the cul-de-sac, right? Because everybody and their grandmother is coming to see the baby, right? And it's the telltale sign that there's been a birth, right? Well, the shepherds get this sign, right? This recognizable sign. God gives them this sign that this baby is to be born, and it's this astonishing sign of his birth. The Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, He will be recognized when these shepherds come to this manger used for a cradle. And mangers, houses back then, many of them were built into the side of a hill or built into the earth, right, or built into the side of a a mountain. And so a manger was really nothing more than a cave in the back part of the house that wasn't finished. And so likely Jesus was born in this cave in the back of someone's home. And here he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. And you know, there's something that we feel, we know, we, we read that, we read this in Luke, we hear about it, this baby, Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, and it's kind of homey and sentimental, right? And we think it's almost too good to be true, the wonder of all of this, right? And it really is true, friends, right? It really is true. And Luke, the way in which he phrases it, it's really interesting. You know, you, you almost need to have a good memory. If, if you take the Gospel of Luke, and you were to read Luke 
from cover to cover this afternoon, you would catch this echo that Luke has from the beginning to the very almost end of his gospel. Think about this. Here in the beginning, Luke says, what is the sign going to be? You will find this Messiah, Jesus, wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger, right? And then he carries that theme from the beginning of Luke to the end. And you hear this echo that at the end of his life, Jesus' life, once again you will find him wrapped in clothes. And you will find him laid down in a tomb, right? Wrapped in swaddling clothes. He was wrapped in a linen shroud and laid in a tomb. And so Luke carries that theme from the beginning to the end of his gospel, right? Bach in his Christmas... uh, Cantata, if you listen to it, Bach ca- caught hold of this. Bach was a devout Christian. And he, he knew that you can't have a Christmas cantata without referring to the passion, the death of Jesus. And so in his Christmas cantata, he has these lines, O sacred head, sore wounded. He gets it right. He tries to express the wonder that these angels are singing to God for, that this baby, Jesus, has been born to die. He's been born very specifically to die for us. To you has been born a Savior, right? You know, and he's not come for joy's sake only. He's not come just to to fulfill joy in Mary and, and Joseph, right? He's not come just to fulfill joy in the shepherds, right? He has been born, right? Listen, friends, if you don't hear anything this morning, hear this. Look at me. Jesus has been born to you. You might be full of sin and mess here this morning. He has been born to you. Even in your mess and in your brokenness, he has been born to you, says the angel. You know, and and to whatever extent the shepherds could understand this, because these guys were shepherds. Their job was to raise sheep, right? And there's all kind of... uh, opinions and theories going out, you know, when is Christmas really to be celebrated? Well, it really should be celebrated in the summertime, or it should be really be celebrated sometime in October. I mean, Christmas could be celebrated. No scholar really knows the exact day when Jesus was born, but most conservative biblical scholars believe that we're, we're getting pretty darn close by September 25th. And if that's true, the shepherds, with their job of raising the sheep, they were raising those sheep for something very specific and special, not just for wool and for clothing. They were raising those sheep for the upcoming sacrifice of the Passover. And so those shepherds likely were making that connection as the angels came, realizing that these sheep that they were raising, they would be inadequate to cover human sin. You know, the Old Testament uh, people would bring their sacrifices to God, right? And they would do that. They would sacrifice those animals to atone for their sin and realizing as they sacrificed that sheep that it was the death of of another, another that would offer them the hope of salvation. But yet, it was an inadequate salvation. It was inadequate to fully cover their sins. And I think the shepherds realized that, that these sheep that they were raising for the sacrifice, though It was a sacrifice, and it was another atoning for their sin. It was inadequate, right? And now this baby has been born, and and it's expressed by the angels so well. Bach expressed it so well in his Christmas cantata. There's this old uh, Coptic Orthodox Christian song. This is an old, 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 old church, the Coptic Orthodox Church. And they sang this song at Christmas that said this. It says, "He 
He did not come to judge the world. And it's interesting that I imagine some of you here this morning, you fear that that's the only reason Jesus came is to be the judge, right? He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. And maybe that for some of you, that's the way you have viewed Jesus. That he is the great giver of blame. That he has come to cast blame on you. But the song goes on and says, he did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek. It was to save that he came. And when we call him Savior, and when we call him Savior, and when we call him Savior, then we call him by his name. Good news for all people, an unexpected sign for all to see. Because this is the greatest birth of all time, the song says. And it brings this unique and significant gloria that the angels are singing, sung by all these angels. And it must have been just an amazing moment. These ordinary shepherds and then, bam, this multitude of angels show up singing gloria, glory to God in the highest, right? Now, if you were to look through the Bible, you can go home and do this. You know, get on Bible Gateway, one of those Bible websites. There are a lot of good ones out there. And just do a word search on angels in the Old Testament. You could do it in the New Testament too. But usually, when you see an angel appear in the Bible, they come as one angel, right? One at a time. One angel appears, right? But occasionally, occasionally you'll see and, and these are great occasions, right? When God's redeeming love and salvation are proclaimed, you'll see a whole company of angels appear, right? So if you just think about it, Job, for instance, talks about this company of angels appearing at creation as the morning star sang and creation is glorified. God has created the world. And Job says this company of angels appear saying, Gloria, this is good. I uh, think about Moses, right? When Uh, God is making his covenant promises to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, I will be your God, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be faithful in my promises to you. And what happens? God ratifies that covenant as the glory of uh, the angel of hosts comes. The host of angel comes, and they glorify God, right, with Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus is going to return soon, or someday, I hope it's soon. The second advent, right? We celebrate the first advent now, but there's going to be a second advent when we celebrate the return of Jesus. And Revelation, Revelation talks about that this company of angels is going to accompany Jesus when he returns again, singing glory to God in the highest. And then on this special occasion, in fact, this the only occasion in the life of Jesus where the angel appears in a multitude, right? Here in Luke chapter 2. And the Greek, the, the, the New Testament's written in the Greek language, Koine Greek. And sometimes, sometimes the Greek doesn't always translate well over to English. And here in particular, it's true that there is a stronger translation, I think, that we could use here when it says this company or this host of angels came. It really could be translated army of angels. It's like this military term. This army of angels, this full military presence of the host of heaven shows up to these lowly, humble shepherds. This overwhelming presence of this army of angels, this shock and awe campaign of the highest form, right? And they were all, these angels, this host, this 
you know, if you've ever heard the military bands, the brass bands, they're just some of the best musicians in the world, and they're just glorious the way they play, and they get you all excited, but it's like this times a trillion, this host of heaven, the army of angels come, and they are bowing down low to the king of kings and to the Lord of lords, right? And it's almost as if the heavenly father has seen the aching and the longing of these magnificent heavenly creatures, the host of heaven, the angels. It's almost like the father has looked into their faces and the angels have said, Father, let us go and sing the praises of your son, our king. And so this army of angels bursts forth in majesty and glory, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men, peace to those on whom God's favor rests, right? And here is the promise of these angels. It is the promise of God in Jesus Christ. He gives peace. Do not be afraid. Hear this. He gives peace because he is the prince of peace. He gives you peace because he is the prince of peace. So friends, here is the good news for all people, right? The the greatest birth announcement of all to these lowly shepherds. And then an unexpected sign for all to see. And then this magnificent Gloria sung by the angels. But you know what's so fascinating about this birth announcement here in Luke chapter 2? You know, there's one limitation. Get this. Lean in on your seats and hear this. Like, huddle up, right, when you do this. Thank you, Don. I saw somebody lean up. That was great. Thank you. Lean in and hear this. There's one limitation to the angel's statement. And I wonder if you noticed it. What did the angels say? See if you catch the limitation. Glory to God in the highest, as the angels sung this together. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace for those on whom God's favor rests. Notice the angels did not say, Glory to God in the highest and peace on those whom God is rather pleased with, right? See, the old King James Version, and if you're a King James lover here, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to knock your version here. But your version does a sorry job of translating this, especially verse 14. I know some of you are like, knife in the heart. Oh, you can't say that about the King James. Well, it doesn't do a very good job of translating verse 14. It translates verse 14 Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. And you know, that sounds good, and that sounds folksy and, and comforting, and, and it's easy when you read that version in, of the King James, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. It's easy to read that and think, okay, right, well, I need to be peaceful, and I need to have goodwill towards God, and I need to have goodwill towards others, and I need to have goodwill towards men, because that's what God says I need to do. And so we make that into this work almost, like I'm going to be nice during Christmas, right? I'm going to try it other times, but it's Christmas time, so it's expected of me. I'm an American, and it's Christmas. I need to be nice during Christmas. And it's something I'm going to try to do, and I'm going to try to earn favor with man, even if I don't like my neighbor. I'm going to try to be nice because it's Christmas time spirit, right? I'm going to have goodwill towards men, and maybe I'll have goodwill towards God too, right? And so we make God out to be this cosmic Santa Claus, right? We make him out to be the Santa Claus like in Macy's who takes kids on their knee and through his white beard and his white hair with this deep fatherly ho, ho, ho voice. Have you been good 
this year? Have you been good, child, this year? No, beloved. He's not Santa Claus. See, God, the one who gave his only son to give peace to our weary consciences because of his work on the cross, beloved. He's not some glorified Santa Claus. He is a gracious Savior. He is a gracious Savior. And you see, the issue here is really not at Christmas time or any Christmas time. The issue here is, oh, well, listen, okay, God's grace comes to me because he is rather pleased with me. No, beloved. That's not what God's word teaches. If you take the Bible for face value and you were to read it, it doesn't teach, okay, God, you're pleased with me. Your favor rests upon me because you're pleased with me and my goodness and what I've done or I've tried or I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing better, Jesus. I'm doing better, God. No, God's grace comes to me because you are so displeased with yourself. God's grace comes to you because you're so disgusted with your sin, disgusted with yourself, and you realize that my only hope is that I desperately need him as a savior. But friends, these shepherds, these humble, lowly shepherds receive this magnificent message of grace as good news. But not all who hear this message, who receive this message, seek his grace and favor. But oh, beloved, I pray if you're here this morning and you've not received Christ's favor, you don't know of God's favor that you would embrace that this morning. You see, my hope is, you know, I read this passage and my soul wells up. It wells up within me. I want to sing glory to, with the angels. I want to say glory, glory, because God, God's favor rests on me because of nothing that I've done or not because of who I am or what I am or what I've done or my heritage or my spiritual lineage. None of that because of who my parents or my grandparents went to church or because I'm an American. God's favor rests on me because his favor rests on me because his favor rests on me. He loved me before the foundation of the world. And I don't have to be afraid. I can have peace. Even in the twistedness of my heart, God's favor rests on me because of Christ. Do you know his favor, friends? <laughs> I'm huddling in like coach. Do you know the favor of God? My prayer is that you might say, Oh Lord, may I be one on whom your favor rests. Let me pray for us. Lord, this is holy, holy ground that we stand upon. That God, you know the deepest, deepest problem of our nation, of our world. And that deepest problem doesn't lie within the politics or the, the division between races or the hatred between a criminal and a police officer or a, an un injustice that maybe happened uh, or countless injustices that happen across the world. Really, the deepest problem is that, Lord, we all try to find favor apart from you. 
really the deepest problem is that we try to find peace by self-medicating ourselves. Um, that we try to find hope and peace in all the wrong places. As Isaiah says, each of us like sheep have gone our own way. That's the banner call for humanity is that each of us goes our own way. Oh Lord, thank you that you know the deepest, darkest, most broken places of our lives. And you gave us the promise. You gave us this birth announcement that to you, Christ is born. Do not be afraid. God's favor can rest upon you because of Christ, because of the one I have sent to die on the cross, this baby born to die, to take our sin, to take that banner that we wave my own way upon himself, and he crushes that banner and then places a new banner over us, the banner of love from the Father, the one who rejoices over us with singing and says, my favor rests upon you because of my son, Jesus. So I pray that if there be any here this morning who don't know the favor of God, I pray now that, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you awaken their eyes to their own misery, to their own sadness and brokenness, that you'd bring them to a place where they realize that they cannot go any further in this way. And that Jesus, this baby born in a manger and swaddling clothes, born to die, that they would come beneath the cross of Jesus and receive the life that, Lord, you have promised them. And that you would give them favor. That they would be born again this day. That Christ would be born in them as we sang in that hymn this morning. Father, thank you. We love you. We need you, Jesus. We honor you. And with the angels, we sing Gloria. Glory to God in the highest. All glory and honor go to you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.